Hello and welcome. I'm Felician and today with me is Phil Agnew, the host of the podcast Notch, Marketing Science Simplified, and Senior Product Marketing Manager at Buffer. In this episode, you will learn a bit more about psychology and why it's important to learn it, and you will get to know four nudges which will affect the way you think about business. So, let's get started. Hi Phil, very happy hey, yeah. to have you here. Yeah, I'm chuffed to be here. What a, it's, I'm really looking forward to today, really excited to chat. It was nice to have a little pre-chat with you beforehand. Yeah, I'm really excited to, uh, to talk all things B2B and behavior science. Yeah, it's very exciting because I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and I learned that on. Like, it's one of the podcasts about psychology that I love the most. And yeah, I would like to ask you, what should every B2B leader know about psychology? Because it's such a broad topic. Like, <laughs> yeah. Not yeah, everybody definitely. learns it. <laughs> well, and first of all, thank you for listening to Nudge. Obviously, really appreciate that and glad you get a lot out of it. Um, so, I mean, B2B leaders knowing about psychology, I think like every B2B leader will know that it's important to understand the psychology behind people. I think maybe the term psychology might put a few B2B leaders off. They might hear it and think, mm-hmm. what, what, what does he mean by that? And I think it's deeper than that. It's, it's more connected to a lot of the activity that leaders need to do. In general, leaders need to convince people. They need to motivate people. They need to persuade people and influence people. That's what every B2B leader will have on their to-do list, whether it's written down or you know higher up. That's That's ultimately what they have to do motivate persuade and influence and well if you want to be doing those things you should like any good leader have a strategy to do them you wouldn't enter a new market with a new product without building a strategy about how you would do it but what i find is all too many leaders try to influence motivate and convince without any strategy in mind they go in with their gut instinct and follow that gut instinct and see where it takes them and I think this is, you know, silly because the world of psychology has spent hundreds of years, experts, you know, researchers, academics have spent hundreds of years understanding how the human brain works and understanding how we make decisions. And if you study that wealth of information, you'll be able to learn actually how people make decisions and how to influence and how to motivate and how to persuade. So as a B2B leader, it's really important, I think, to take a look at that. I'll I'll give a few examples, you know, motivation. There's some great insights from Dan Pink, who is a a social scientist and and New York Times bestseller, um, who's also been on Nudge, little plug there, he's coming up on episode 18. And he talks about the psychology behind motivation. And his research has found that people are motivated really by three things. They're motivated by purpose. So doing something which has a purpose. They're motivated by autonomy. So being able to control what they do in their job. And they're motivated by mastery. So having the ability to master the things they're working on. And I think what's interesting about that is if you don't know that, you might just assume motivation is all about financial incentives. You might just assume the best way to get somebody to do something is to to whack a bit of money behind it. But his research suggests that the opposite is true. Financial incentives only work up into a point. Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman has said that any increase in wage over $55,000 a year 
doesn't improve satisfaction of life. You get a short-term boost, but nothing more. And Dan Pink's work has shown that short-term financial incentives only become less incentivizing and less motivating over time. The much better thing to do as a leader is to try and encourage autonomy, mastery, and purpose, rather than doing these sort of short-term goals. So one very specific example of how psychology can can really help you be a better leader. It's so interesting. And like my eyes lit up when you said mastery because the book that I'm currently reading is Mastery by Robert Greene. There are a lot of business people that believe that money is the yeah, the major factor that will attract talent, that if they give a higher salary, then yeah, people will come. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's not true. And I've seen it yeah, in a few, ta- a few companies where people, yeah, they were part of the company, they got better offers, but decided to stay because here they can be themselves mm-hmm. and they know that they are yeah, mastering their skills and they know that their work has a purpose, that they contribute to a greater goal. Yeah, yeah. And mastery is really important, isn't it? And I think studying the the greats who have mastered something is really eye-opening. What you discover is that they have this intense focus that I think a lot of us don't have. Um, you know, the best B2B leaders will have this as well, this intense focus on getting better at the thing they want to do. And I think all too many of us don't have that. One one caveat, though, one thing to really note about mastery is there's um, a Malcolm Gladwell book called Outliers, which talks about getting good at something. And there's this thing that he writes about called the 10,000-hour rule. And I, I was pretty sold on this for years and, and, and believed it. It's the idea that if you want to get good at something, you need to have done 10,000 hours. You need to have practiced it for 10,000 hours before you'll really become a master at it. And um, I recently spoke to Bruce Daisley on my podcast, who's a, he's a bit of a researcher into workplace culture. And he he, he pulled that apart. He, he, he basically shared that the evidence behind that isn't true. So the 10,000 hour rule, it's a it kind of doesn't hold up, especially in sports. There's this wonderful example. So there are studies that look at this and prove it. There's this wonderful example, though, of a, of a high jumper who was, I think, started high jump back in 2003. And then the next year, the next in the, within four months had qualified for the Commonwealth and finished fourth in the world in the Commonwealth in oh. high jump. And then the next year won the world championship. So like there's lots of these examples where 10,000 hours isn't the case. So when we think about mastery, don't purely think it's to do with the time you put in. I think there's really something behind the quality of the work you're doing as well. So, you know, if you want to become the best writer, a lot of people will say, I'll just write every single day. I think there's a bit of an argument to say, no, don't just do that. Actually study it read around it, get information and, and, and perspective from different angles and apply that to your work because often you'll find that helps you master things more than just simply chiseling away at something for, for an endless amount of time. Robert Green he shows a few ways that you can become a master, that there is not a single path that you should take and it's not only about learning. Like for every person, it can be something different. So some people have to yeah, try different things out for... Yeah, Let's say they do one thing for one year, another thing for another year, then they completely switch disciplines. So, for example, someone started as a writer, but then they started uh, studying science. And at one point, all those insights, they connect and something clicks, so to Mm. say. And yeah, that's sometimes how they become masters. But yeah, Mm. it's up to the person, basically. 
And I would like to go with you through some nudges mm. that you covered on your podcast and uh, that I think can impact B2B leaders in the future and the way they think about business. So maybe let's start with the mere exposure effect. What is it and how does it affect the way we should think about marketing? Yeah. So I'll start with just like a quick definition because some of your listeners might not be familiar with nudges. Um, and nudges are really small tweaks which are based on psychological principles or behavior science principles, which when you make those small tweaks should have hopefully quite a big impact on behavior. Um, and nudges, you know, that could be something like choice architecture. So a famous example in the UK is changing uh, organ donation from an opt-in where people had to opt in to donate to opt out where people were automatically enrolled and had to opt out. And that increased donations from sort of a 20% sign up rate to an 80% sign up rate. It did the same with pensions as well. And now people save literally billions more cumulatively because people are opted in rather than opt out. So a really simple example of a small nudge to just subtly shift behavior, you know, um, small thing like that. Um, the mere exposure effect is interesting because I guess you could argue that it's, it's probably not a nudge. It's something a bit, you know, bigger than that. It's more of a psychological principle, um, which which affects the way we perceive the world. So the idea with the mere exposure effect is just being exposed to something for a prolonged period of time will increase the amount that you not only remember it and recall it, of course, but also the amount you like it as well. So there's a famous study where um, Western participants who couldn't speak Mandarin were shown um, Chinese sort of typeface letters um, and they were shown different letters over the course of this study. One letter they were shown repeatedly, time and time again, to kick in that mere exposure, whereas the other letters they were only shown on a single time. And they asked them at the end which of these letters, you know, there's no meaning attached to these letters, nobody knows what they mean, but they asked them, the researchers asked at the end, which of these letters do you do you like the most? And in the majority of cases, people ch pick the one that they've seen more times. So that's mere exposure is having an effect. As a hilarious adaptation of this study, which was done in, as always, with a lot of these studies, done in a university lecture hall with a with a psycholo psychological lecturer, and he was he decided that in his lectures for one of the terms, he would ask a I don't know who it was, a student or somebody, to join the lecture every single lecture over the course of many months, sit in the back row with I think it was like a black bin bag over their head so bizarre right imagine going into yeah. the lecture and seeing someone with a black bin bag over their head um, and over the course of the sort of term he measured people's perception so asked them to fill out a sort of questionnaire to measure their perception towards this random person with a black yeah. bin bag over their head and he found sort of mere exposure effect taking hold so as the course went on as the term went on people went from being quite apprehensive and, and confused about this what this person with a black bin bag over their head to accepting it and then eventually liking it. So some of the responses at the end of the term were like, you know, this worrying that the black bin bag person might go and that they might not be there and they've got really familiar with it. A bit of a funny example of the mirror exposure effect. What I think is most interesting about this is how it affects businesses. So there really is a lot of evidence that backs up that the more a business, a more a consumer sees your brand, just simply sees it, the more they will actually like it and the more they will be able to recall it. 
So if you just think why the Coca-Cola bother advertising and why do they spend so much on advertising? They are easily the best selling product of all time. Why do they bother? Well, it's because of the mere exposure effect. They know how important it is to continually be in people's eyeline, whether that's in product placement in a movie, whether that is the umbrella that you're sitting under in a cafe or whether that is a billboard that you're looking at. They know the value of the mere exposure effect. But for businesses, there are some really interesting ways you can apply this. So Richard Chataway, who was the author of a book called Behavioral Business, um, he spoke to me on Nudge and shared that he did some work for a bank, a Dutch bank called ING. And this Mm -hmm. bank was trying to enter the British market, but they had a tiny marketing budget. They basically didn't have much money. And Richard Chataway is a behavioral scientist. So he said, look, let's try and use the mere exposure effect to capture the market. Let's not try and spend money on expensive ads which are Mm -hmm. tv radio um, even newspapers at the time let's go for ads that are cheaper but will be seen by lots of people and he basically used billboards so they put huge amounts of billboards across the country much much cheaper than tv ads but you know this idea of mere exposure also a bit of costly signaling as well looks expensive and he claims that these billboards helped him grow the brand quite effectively and cheaply because a lot of people were able to see the brand repeatedly in a in a fairly cheap way and get here have followed that strategy so they're a sort of takeaway supermarket brand came into the uk market didn't spend a penny on tv ads radio ads just went solely on on um, ads only in london as well and managed to build this mere exposure effect it's also how this cafe brand called joe the juice has notoriously grown across europe so joe the juice had an option of building cafes across the countries that they enter so this mm-hmm. is the sort of starbucks strategy of you go to poland and you will build a cafe in crack off in warsaw across the country same in germany same in italy same in spain same in belgium mm-hmm. wherever you go um, but joe the juice do something different they focus all their attention on one specific city so i remember i think it was meant when i first looked at this two years ago they they had only built in five cities it was something like london amsterdam and i forget the others but they had built a load of cafes in those cities mm-hmm. so rather than building one cafe they would go in there and build 10 and 15 and all of that is to trigger the mere exposure effect you are more likely to go to into a joda juice cafe if you've seen one two three other cafes on the high street that are joda juice across london for example you're more likely to go in because you've just seen it more yeah. so a really interesting example you know they could have gone for a much more orthodox strategy of building cafes everywhere but they decided to focus you can apply the same thing to b2b they think about conferences arguably it's better to spend a lot of money um, doing major major sponsoring at one conference than to distribute your money and spend a little bit at loads of different ones because you'll build up that mirror exposure more um, assuming you can you can you know really get a lot of placement at one one conference that's a, a think, rogue lateral example but the best one i could think yeah but i think it's also more yeah it's more possible today like we see with podcast guesting for example like there are bit, lots of business podcasts and we have lots of hosts today <laughs> <laughs> and yeah when there is a business leader let's say a ceo of a startup and he shows up on 50 podcasts in the course of a year and each of those podcast hosts, they promote him on LinkedIn, they promote the episode, yeah, they share it with their network. And it also adds up to the mere exposure effect. And let's say this person focuses only on podcasts in a certain country or around London. In addition to that, they can buy ads and yeah, 
it will take yeah, the effects will basically take place slowly but surely i think you're right because i think there's this idea that why would you go on more than one podcast right if your yeah. content's always the same obviously that's not the case obviously you see people go on multiple different content podcasts and say the same thing and i think the reason they do that is because they're seeing the benefit of the mirror exposure effect doesn't matter that yeah. you're seeing the same thing over and over again. The, the ads for Coca-Cola today are, like, let's face it, they're identical pretty much to how they were yeah. 10 years ago. Exactly. There's a lot of marketers being paid a lot to do, not much, just you know, show zoomed-in pictures of Coca-Cola, same with McDonald's, same with Burger King. But the reason it works is because just the more you see that thing, whether it's a person or a burger, the more you're going to like it. So I think you're bang on. That's exactly why people would go on as many podcasts as possible, even if they say the exact same thing on every yeah. single one. Exactly. And Phil, can you tell me a bit more about the primacy effect? Because it also yeah. has a huge in yeah effect on yeah, the primacy effect has a huge effect on businesses. <laughs> yeah. So this one, this one is a one that a lot of people will be familiar with. It's the idea that um, our memory is not we're not we're not video cameras we can't remember everything we see everything we hear um, our brains don't work that way um, our brains use heuristics heuristics shortcuts things to to help us remember and take in information without overwhelming us and one of those shortcuts is the primacy effect which is the idea that you are more likely to remember the first thing you hear or the first thing you see so if you've got a shopping list and you write down lots of different items on that shopping list and then that shopping list is taken away from you in studies you find that people are more likely to remember the first and the last thing so primacy effect is the first thing recency effect is the last thing and there's lots of interesting studies uh, particularly by someone called steve martin who's written books with noah goldstein and robert cialdini one called the small big which is um is it called the small big? Let me tell you. Yeah, the small big. <laughs> it's on my bookshelf above, so I have a look. Um, and a really interesting study that he's run, which looks at, you know, the order people can present in, say, a pitch, for example. So say you're a business which has got a bunch of agencies pitching for your work. He's found that the primacy effect takes hold and you're not only more likely to remember the first person who pitches, but because you're more likely to remember them, there's a higher chance that those people will get picked. Um, there's other studies that show the same is true in things like Super Bowl ads. So Super Bowl ads, million pounds, million dollar an ad. They really shouldn't be all <laughs> cost the same amount yeah. because the first ad in the slot so say so there's going to be five ads during the during the ad break the first and the last one will have considerably higher recall when you adjust for everything else so they should really be more expensive and then the same goes true for for job job candidates as well and the way to get around this for job candidates especially if you're running multiple interviews so say one candidate will interview with lots of different people and other candidates will interview uh, before and after them is to always try and randomize the order so you don't feel that bias and you're not biased towards one person who's always interviewing first for example um, so sort of subtle ways where it applies in business i think a really important thing to do, to consider with these effects is um, just being aware of them just being aware of them in, in the sort of negotiations you might be conducting and also in in how you're operating your business you might find that there's a chance to take uh, advantage of the primacy effect and, and a chance to take advantage of the, the the recency effect as well the one thing i would say with these effects is like they're subtle they're small primacy and recency you know it's small things you 
and it's kind of obvious like you remember stuff that um happens most recently and 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 first but there is there is a part of this effect which is actually quite surprising when people hear it and it's a study which is done by daniel kahneman nobel laureate who's author of thinking fast and slow and in his study he asked participants to put their hands in 14 degree water which is quite cold it's uncomfortable so if you if you put your hands in there it's like putting your hands in to the arctic ocean or something like if, you know when we dipped your feet in there it's like you will the feel it. probably, probably more like the atlantic actually not the arctic <laughs> it still feels cold though um you don't like it and so he these participants were asked they had to keep their hands in the water for a minute and then one set of the participants could take their hands out after that minute and you know they, you know brush their hands off they're fine but the other set had to keep their hands in for an extra 30 seconds however the final 30 seconds the temperature was slightly increased from 14 degrees to 15 degrees so you know arguably the final 30 seconds were slightly better but ultimately the whole the whole experience should be worse because you are doing a minute and a half and you're doing that at an average of like 14.2 centigrade rather than 14. So it's, it's, it's much worse than the other one. But when participants who had done both were asked to repeat, to, to ask which one they would repeat, which one they would do if they had to do it again, the majority of people chose the longer um, example, but where the ending was slightly more comfortable. So that's really interesting and really surprised a lot of people. You know, economists would look at this and say, okay, one is objectively better. Shorter is better. 15 degrees is uncomfortable to keep your hand in, in that water. So have, having 30 seconds at that is, is surely worse. But the behavior science, the actual psychology behind it suggests that no, people's perspective is, is heavily influenced by their final moments of experiencing something. And even if you can make that slightly better, it will dramatically improve the whole perspective and, and cause them to do that again. And there's so many examples you know, how, of, of really thinking, well, this is really important for a business. The final and, thing you say is is vital to consider. The final experience you're, you're somebody has with your brand is vital to consider because it heavily impacts how they view the whole experience of your brand. Yeah. So would you say that when starting a project, you should always focus on yeah, starting on a good note and ending on a good note, <laughs> even if there are problems in between? <laughs> I think so. I think, yeah, I think like always ending with the good news is always good. <laughs> if like there's a reason why the sort of feedback sandwich is a thing where you do good news, bad news, and then good news that, that helps people. Um, I think highlighting, you know, I, I, I don't know, reviewing a project, yeah. Highlighting good things at the end is important. The, the main one for me is, you know, this is a podcast about B2B leaders, B2B leaders have to have to convince people. They have to give presentations. The main one for me is really thinking about how you end your, your presentations, how you end your pitch. Steve Jobs was a, was a master at this. If you watch any of Steve Jobs keynotes, the way he ends is fascinating he doesn't say he doesn't pull up a slide which says here's my conclusions here's all the points i've covered today yeah. click 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 i'm steve jobs thanks for coming along see you later he, he obviously doesn't do that he's a master of persuasion influence and motivation so he he ends all of his presentations with oh and there's one more thing. So he holds something back and reveals it at the end. So he did that with the iPod mini colors. So showcasing all the different colors. He did that with um, the iTunes being able to get TV shows. He did that with FaceTime with one of the iPhone reveals. So he said, oh, there's one more thing. I'm going to call Johnny Ive. And then Johnny Ive's face pops up and this blows people's minds. And he knew how important those final 
minutes were of a presentation. He knew, however good that presentation is, if he doesn't end with something that will capture the attention, something that will really spark a bit of joy, the whole presentation will be viewed as, as mundane. If the ending is mundane, your whole presentation will probably be viewed as mundane because of this, these biases that we have. Again, primacy effect, really important. The way you start is really important, but also recency, the way you end as well. I think it's really important to consider these things as a leader, especially when you're trying to persuade and convince someone. I will have to watch uh, his presentation after our recording because I never paid attention to that. <laughs> well, little little plug here. I've done a uh, two episodes on Steve Jobs on Nudge where I go back and watched. I've spent like forty hours watching all of his keynotes and reading all about him, and I share all his tips in a in a future episode. So hit subscribe on Nudge and and, and make <laughs> yeah. sure you see when that one comes out. Awesome and. Will it be live in the next few weeks or a bit later? <laughs> probably, probably not. <laughs> I've got a really slow release schedule. I promise it will be live this year. Okay. <laughs> so then I will update the description in this episode to add <laughs> links to it. Cheers. Okay. And I want to ask you also about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Because I believe it has a huge influence on our careers, especially okay. if someone is new to something. So please explain what it is and... How does it affect yeah, yeah. how we progress over yeah, so our lifetime? Dunning-Kruger effect, named after the researchers who, who sort of identified it. And it's it's a very simple idea. It's the idea that it's, it's always pictured on a graph and the graph sort of starts very high and goes down anyway. I won't explain like that because this is a podcast. But it's basically the idea that when you have a very low level of competence in an area or, or very low but not nothing, so let's give an example. Um, sports is a classic one. You Let's say you just watch sports. You've never played the sport before. You're watching the Olympics. You're watching someone throw a javelin. You've, you've seen it a few times. So you have a little understanding. You've got a bit of competence. What you will actually have when you have that little bit of understanding, which is above zero, is you'll actually have very high confidence in your ability to be able to do that thing. So when you when you just know a little bit about it, you have a little bit of competence, your your confidence in your belief in your ability is very high. So you might watch a couple of people throw a javelin and you'll think, I would be really good at that. Like I think I can really throw a javelin quite far. But what's interesting is as your level of competence goes up, so as you learn more about throwing a javelin, perhaps you try it for the first time and you start to train, you quickly your confidence quickly drops very, very quickly. And, and this is called the valley of despair, the sort of when you start something and then actually start to do it repeatedly, you realize how bad you are and your confidence gets very, very low, even though your competence is actually going up. And then slowly over the time, this is called the slope of enlightenment. As you learn more and more and more, your competence slowly goes up. And then when you're really a guru, when you're an expert at it, your level of confidence gets to the same level as you were when you were an idiot and you just knew a little bit. And so there's a lot of studies which sort of reference this. There's a, I think it's a really interesting study. I'm trying to remember all of it, but it's about the researchers would ask people, do you know how a toilet works? And when people asked are asked this, the majority of people say, yeah, of course, of course I know how a toilet works. And the reason is, is because we all have a little bit of competence in using a toilet. We all use it every day. Um, we all, you know, we've all been to the toilet. But the researchers will then ask, okay, explain how it works, talk me through it. And in, nine, in like the majority of these examples, the people start to explain how a toilet works and they quickly realize they don't know how it works. They, 
don't really know how the basin refills. They don't really know how the flush operates. They they don't know what happens when you pull the flush. The researchers will keep asking these why questions, these how questions. So they say, okay, well, how does this happen? How does this happen? And then after the researcher has asked them, they ask again, okay, do you really think you know how a toilet works? And they'll say, no, no, I actually don't. <laughs> and it's really interesting. And, and it's a great example of how you can overcome the Dunning-Kruger effect. So this is something really to be wary of as a B2B leader because what you need to be sure of is that the people you're talking to don't have this high level of competent confidence but low level of competence so they're not just idiots that think they know everything you need to be sure you're working with people who have extremely high level of competence and confidence because of that so asking these why questions these five why questions whenever you're working with someone is really important someone might say yeah we can definitely grow our sales by doing facebook ads for the next 5 months as a B2B leader, you should be questioning this. You should be saying, okay, how will, how will you do that? They'll give you an answer. Why would that work? Make sure you're asking it five times. You might come across as a dick. You might come across as someone who doesn't believe in the person you're talking to. But what's worse, having a failed project that you waste money on because you didn't bother to ask why enough times or actually figuring out that something won't work. I think every B2B leader would say, I want to figure out when something doesn't work rather than just believe people naively. So beware of the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's very prevalent throughout all different industries. It's affected me lots of times where I thought I'm competent in something when I'm actually not. It's the same for listeners as well. You will all have something that you think you're actually quite competent in and you, you really aren't. So be aware of it for yourself as well. But as a leader, I think the most important thing is to be checking that the people you're working with are actually high competence and high confidence rather than just high confidence, low competence. I think that many new managers experience it. Because, you know, before you become a manager, you are pretty sure that yeah, you will be the perfect person to manage people. You will know how to set priorities and yeah, how to communicate bad news. But when the time comes that you have to do it, then yeah, it's not so easy as you thought it would be. I agree. And I'd actually say, my, my view, unfortunately, with managers as well, is I think there are very there are managers that have spent a long time in the job that still have high confidence and low competence because the feedback loop in management isn't always particularly good. You know, you are, you hear if a staff member is absolutely livid with their job and they're really complaining, but you rarely hear you rarely get feedback on small things that you might be doing wrong in the same way that you would if you were saying. I don't know, writing copy for a blog. You can yeah. see exactly how many people read each one. You get small feedback on, on what's working. One of the issues with management is there's not a good feedback loop and constantly gaining feedback on how you're performing. So it's really important to incentivize that, to be asking for feedback as much as possible, probably asking in an anonymous way as well so people feel really comfortable giving that feedback. I think the best managers out there are people who actually feel really good about getting bad news and feel comfortable <laughs> about hearing what's wrong yeah. because that's the only way you'll gain that competence and really learn what works. Yeah, exactly. And it's also a skill to learn how to take those bad news in. It's just difficult. Like, nobody likes receiving bad news. <laughs> no, no. No one likes receiving rejection as well. Yeah. And Phil, what would you say is the biggest takeaway from this episode? Well, um, I think for me, like the most, the takeaway that I always have is, so a bit about my story. I, um, I became, I studied marketing at 
university um spent fifty thousand pounds studying marketing it's a lot of money went into my first marketing job and realized i was awful at it all of the tasks i was being asked to do i, I didn't know how i couldn't write a blog post that people wanted to read i couldn't write an email that people wanted to open i couldn't pitch a new idea that people would listen to i basically discovered that you can know all the frameworks and strategies and tactics behind marketing but it doesn't matter if you don't know how to sort of influence, persuade and convince people. And what I've realized since then, and what I discovered was sort of this world of behavior science and consumer psychology is the more you understand how people make decisions, the more you understand how people's brains work, the better you will be at your job. And especially, this is especially true in business where we are in the job of convincing people to do things. So hopefully the takeaway that I hope people have from this is that spending some time really understanding the psychology behind how we make decisions is a really smart thing to do um, and testing these things for yourself is really interesting as well i think there are loads of really easy quick fire ways to test things that too many of us just don't bother doing um but I, yeah, but i think it's really easy to do like i'll give you like a really quick example social proof um social proof is the idea that we follow the actions of others it's this sort of evolutionary trait where if you saw loads of cavemen running out of a cave you don't go in that cave we have evolved <laughs> to learn to follow the actions of others and it means now if you're walking down the street and you see five people looking into a shop window you will look into that shop window you can't help it and this can be applied to all sorts of thing in business like richard shotton put a, a best selling label on a beer in a london pub and found that the beer sales increased by 2.5 times we follow the actions of others and i think that it's really interesting to test these things out for yourself so I, i've run a few tests on social proof and one test i discovered didn't work so i did a test which well, I was trying to convince people who had signed up for my course to sign up for my newsletter. And so I used a bit of social proof. I said, most people who had signed up for, for this course have also signed up for my newsletter. And then I did a, a control variant, which just said, sign up for my newsletter. So you'd think the social proof version would work, but it actually didn't. It didn't. It got a worse result. And the reason was is because the people who had taken my course took it like years ago. So they didn't consider themselves to be people who had even taken the course or even think that they were part of that group. So saying that other people like you have taken this course and you should sign up for my newsletter didn't work. So it's really important to test it. But then I did another application of social proof where um, I sent an email to my newsletter saying, uh, listen to the latest episode of Nudge. And then the variant said, oh, by the way, we just hit 100,000 downloads. A little bit of social proof so saying lots of people listen and lots of people have listened. And that variant really worked. So that open rate, I think, went up by 30% on that email, which had that bit of social oh. proof. Click-through rates on the, on the email went up as well. And that's a lesson that I've taken away. Every time I hit a milestone, 100,000 downloads, 150,000 downloads, 200,000 downloads, I think we're up to about 300,000 downloads now. I'll include that in the email subject line because I know it works. So to summarize, learning about psychology and behavior science, really interesting, definitely something all of us should do. Then actually testing it, trying it out for ourselves and finding ways to apply it is, is a real no-brainer, especially in the, in the world of, of business and, and I think especially B2B business as well. Yeah, and everyone can apply it basically. Like no matter if you work in marketing, sales, HR or anywhere else, you can try, yeah, you can learn about psychology and apply the things that you learn the next day basically. Phil, where can people find you? And please tell them why is your podcast the best place to learn more about psychology? <laughs> um, 
I'll use a few nudges to do that. So <laughs> social proof, like uh, 20,000 people e- listen each each month. Um, so, you know, you're in good company. Lots of other marketers seem to like the show. It's been 255 star reviews, so a little bit more social proof for you there. Um, but yeah, if you want to go and listen to Nudge, um, you should just search for Nudge wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a little orange logo and that'll be my one. My name's Phil Agnew, so it's attached to that. If you do, you'll learn things like how Steve Jobs used nudges to influence and persuade people. You'll learn about how I improved the Reddit ad by 15% using an, an ancient storytelling technique. Um, and you'll learn, I think there's an episode coming up with Dan Pink where you'll learn how to get a raise in your job. Um, the reason I said that, by the way, is because that is pure curiosity gap so the curiosity gap is this great nudge where if you hint at things hint at them you're going to capture attention and make people remember them so that's that's a really good one to be aware of um so yeah go and go and listen to nudge search for it wherever you get your podcasts um and yeah i'm phil agnew um you can find me on twitter on linkedin it's phil and then agnew is a-g-n-e-w connect with me follow me send me a message i'd love to chat so yeah hopefully we'll uh, hear from some of you on on those platforms yeah, I will add all the links in the description of this podcast. But I have one more last question for you. Is there someone I should interview next to learn mm. even more? So you put this um, for the listeners. Um, it, your host does a very good job of basically preparing the guest for the show. So he's got a few questions and he put this as one of the questions. And I was thinking like, oh, okay, who should I suggest? And my advice is actually a slightly different. So my feeling with podcasts is that there is it's very easy to do it's really easy to make a podcast so the barrier to entry is very low there's more podcasts than there are books there's more podcasts than there are movies there's more podcasts than there are tv shows like it's very easy to create podcasts and one of the criticisms that i would have of most podcasts is that I don't really feel like too many people are striving for perfection. They're not striving for mastery. They're doing it because it is easy enough to do. And they're they're following that sort of 10,000 hour rule. If if I do this for 10,000 hours, I'll be the best in the world. I don't think that's the way the world works. And I would really encourage you and everyone who else who's got podcasts to strive for perfection more. So rather than thinking, oh, you know, which guest should I get on next? I'd be thinking, what topic can I talk about, which will be unbelievably interesting for my users for my listeners what topic will really really grip them and and make make, you know be so interesting that you can't not listen to that show i don't know what it is but think about that topic for you know maybe that topic is how do i get a raise at work maybe that topic is what you know i've analyzed the best ways to get funding for a b2b business here they are maybe that topic is the best advertising strategy in, in a downturn turns out to be this and i would start with the topic think about the user first think about the listener first think what what would be so interesting to them that you couldn't not click on that and then go and find a guest that can help you make that show because i think that is a much more valuable episode you can put together and will definitely differentiate you from the sort of classic business podcast which is today i'm talking to x about y and this and that and you could actually you know do a show which i think would be thumb stopping content is, is how i've heard it described it will stop your thumb as you're scrolling through a newsfeed and you'll say i have to listen to that so that would be my suggestion awesome thank you for that and yeah you made me think so phil <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for today it was great and yeah looking forward to seeing you next time and to listening to notch oh thanks so much thanks for having me on 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Be a B2B Leader. If you liked this episode, make sure to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Also, if there is something you would like to learn, let me know. After all, we are building a knowledge base for B2B.